Hello and welcome to the Inerrant Word Podcast. Today I'll be talking with Dr. Derek Brown. Originally from Montana, Derek received his undergraduate degree from the Master's College in Santa Clarita, California, and his MDiv and PhD from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He is an associate pastor at Creekside Bible Church in Cupertino, California, and academic dean at Cornerstone Bible College and Seminary in Vallejo, California. He lives with his wife and three children in the South San Francisco Bay Area. You can find him online at fromthestudy.com. He also serves as general editor for withallwisdom.org. I'll be talking with Derek about the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy and why he believes it needs to be updated. The Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy was a statement produced at an international summit conference of evangelical leaders in Chicago in 1978. Several hundred Christians, including 41 churches and 38 Christian denominations, met to discuss the issue of biblical inerrancy. Over 300 evangelical leaders, including Francis Schaeffer, R.C. Sproul, J.I. Packer, John MacArthur, Norman Geisler, signed the document. While many evangelical denominations and churches have adopted the statement in the last 45 years, some people have called for the statement to be updated to answer the challenges brought by critics. Other people have said the statement doesn't need to be updated and that it is sufficient for answering its critics. Derek represents the former argument. Now, on to the conversation. So Derek, thank you for joining me today uh, on the Inerrant Word podcast. Um, first, I wanted to ask if you could give like a brief overview of who you are and what you do and um, what uh, what for, gets you excited, uh, gets you up in the morning and that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me, Clay. And I appreciate you uh, bringing up this important topic that we're about to talk about. Uh, a little bit about me. I'm a full time. I'm a pastor at Creekside Bible Church in Cupertino, California. And uh, a part-time, I'm an academic dean at a little seminary in the North Bay in Vallejo, California. And um, I've been a pastor here for about nine years. I graduated seminary in 2014. Uh, prior to that, from about 2003 to 2007, I was a youth pastor back here in the Bay Area. Uh, when he got done with seminary, my wife and I moved back here. And... Um, and about five years ago, I had the opportunity to become an academic, the academic dean at Cornerstone, which is wonderful because I get to train pastors. So I get to do pastoral ministry full time, and then I get to train pastors, and that has just been a wonder, just a joy for me to be able to do that. And then, in terms of uh, family, my I got a uh, my wife. Her name is Amy. She, we were married in two thousand five. I actually met and married her while I was out doing that youth uh, pastor pastoral ministry. Um, we got married in two thousand five. We have three. Uh, delightful children and uh, our son's the oldest he's 13 we have another son he's about to turn 12 then our little girl is is seven and so that's a lot of fun it's a really fun age right now actually we really enjoy this age and um, in terms of what gets me up in the morning boy that's a that's a great question I just I am so grateful for the work that uh, the Lord has laid before me right now in terms of what I get to do at the church and what I get to do at the seminary and then the responsibilities he's given me at home. There's just, um, when I think about the importance of a biblical worldview, I think about this area of work and especially as it, when it comes to men and 
how they are to shape their lives and really take their work seriously. Uh, over the last several years, that's also become a, a kind of a, a passion of mine, just thinking and writing and, and speaking on the issue of work from a Christian perspective. And so I'm just so excited with what God has laid before me and entrusted to me that I do truly generally get up. I mean, pastoral ministry is hard and there's a lot of disappointments and trials and and meetings and and uh, confrontations you would otherwise not want to have. But overall, uh, it's just it's been great and i really enjoy my work and so um i think paul's promise that because of christ's resurrection none of our work for the lord is in vain and so i can get up in the morning even if i've had a, a rough day before even if i preached a sermon that i walked away from going man i, I could have done better or whatever i get up the next morning like the lord's alive and i belong to him and and i can continue to serve in ministry because our work is not in vain so that's a little bit about me. Uh, just to maybe a few interesting facts, if it's fun and helpful. Uh, my family and I we really enjoy the outdoors. I grew up in Montana, so we spend a lot of our uh, free time doing that, whether it's hiking or mountain biking or camping. It's a, that's a, far, a fun part of, the, um, of our family life. And we just think it's so vital, too, just for, for Christians as, uh, to be outdoors because we're just so refreshed i think and that's god's design we're refreshed by the outdoors and uh yet kind of another thing i enjoy writing about it as well so that's a little bit about me uh i was saved back in night saved out of catholicism and uh, trusted christ and uh yes yeah, saved back in 1998 and uh really had an initial just once i got saved i had a passion to serve the lord and and that's and immediately went into to school for that for that purpose. So, well, I'll put a link in the show notes, but I'll I encourage my listeners to go and listen to Derek's testimony. It's really powerful. Um, don't have time to to delve into it right now, but it's sure. very very good, um, and it'll definitely lift one spirits. Um, oh, cool. So, uh, getting right into the the heart of the topic, uh, what when did you first became uh when did you first become interested in the subject of inerrancy and when did you first become acquainted with the chicago statements so in god's strange providence i became acquainted with the doctrine of inerrancy immediately almost immediately upon my conversion and not in a good way what i mean by that is that i was immediately probably a few months in kind of like when i because i i was at a Catholic college studying business and I transferred to a small conservative Christian college and which believes in inerrancy and holds to inerrancy but I became a bible studies uh, biblical studies major which I don't know if that was the best for just a brand new Christian I was kind of like force feeding meat to a, a baby but nevertheless that's where I was and so I was confronted right away with um potential problems in the bible and you know reading some not not reading things from the uh, teacher's perspective, but rather having to read things in commentaries and saying, here, some of these are some of the problems. And these are some of the problems that get raised by liberals and so on. And all of a sudden I'm like, whoa, people actually don't completely believe the Bible. This is new to me. You know, like, why doesn't everybody believe the Bible? It's, you know, it's true and stuff. And so I was immediately confronted with these uh, issues and it kind of threw me into a bit of a tailspin. And, and I had to regain my footing and just clawed back and really started to dig deep into this issue of inerrancy, inerrancy the Bible's reliability, uh, the truthfulness of Scripture, the trans, the transmission of Scripture, 
all these issues I had to get, I was kind of thrown into them at an early spiritual age, so to speak. And that's when I first just initially became very interested in this because to me it was life and life and death, life or death that um, scripture had to be fully reliable or just had no basis for uh, my faith. And from that point on, I just took an active interest in it. When I got to seminary, uh, continued that continued to fuel the fire. And then when I started thinking about my dissertation, wanting to do it in the doctrine of scripture and wanting to do it in the doctrine of inerrancy. And that's when me and my advisor, he pointed me in a particular direction, but it started when I was a brand new Christian and just wanting to have a very clear understanding of scripture's inerrancy and reliability. So. Very good. Yeah. It's definitely seems like it's been a part of your testimony for a long time. Um, yeah. Now, uh, when did you first become acquainted with the Chicago statements? Oh yeah. Sorry. <laughs> part of your question. Unfortunately, I didn't become acquainted with it until seminary. I believe if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, and this is somewhat of a disappointment to me because I mentioned that conservative Christian college that, that I was at, I never, I don't believe I was ever acquainted with it there. I don't think I was introduced to it there. I don't think it was until seminary. So that would have meant not until 2007, you know, I'm, I became a Christian in 1998, not until 2007 did I become aware of the Chicago statement and its contents. And so that's when it happened. I was kind of that generation that Jason Sexton talks about in his article that didn't know the Chicago statement. And I think that that was a, a problem. And and I'm, I'm disappointed in my college education that it wasn't provided there. And I also, I've had some friends who've walked away from the faith and had a real problem with inerrancy. And I just wonder, had they been acquainted with the Chicago statement, maybe that could have been mitigated because the Chicago statement is such an excellent, helpful, thorough document. So um, just an encouragement to teachers out there, professors out there to acquaint their students with the Chicago statement. And uh, But it wasn't for me, it wasn't till, till much later, unfortunately. Well, if you were part of the generation that Jason Sexton talks about of not really knowing what the Chicago statement was, it's virtually unknown today. Yeah, right. I know you're right. I mean, you teach students like are my, that are my age, and um, yeah, they probably have never heard of it, or maybe have slightly heard of it, but have never read through it. Oh, you're exactly right, and it's part of the curriculum. Every time I teach, I teach bibliology at the seminary, and we have to go through the Chicago statement. We just do um, every every year. And then I just got done teaching our young professionals a series on inerrancy and acquainted them with the Chicago Statement. And, and none of them had ever read it. Some of them had never even heard of it. And you're exactly right. It, um, most you're right. Most people a generation younger than me haven't have even heard of it. Well, I'm glad that you raise the issues today and write about it in outlets like the Gospel Coalition. So, um, yeah, thank you for myself. Uh, that's why I do what I do, um, at least mm. all part, is that I try to educate um, Zoomers, as we're as I'm called, okay. <laughs> Zoomers. Uh, that um, th that inerrancy is a critical issue. Um, yeah. But uh, you mentioned your dissertation, and in your dissertation, you talk about reformulating the Chicago Statement. Um, can you briefly state why the Chicago Statement needs updating? Yeah, that's a, a great question. I believe, I mean, the simple answer is I believe it needs updating because there have been recent developments since 1978 when it was originally 
crafted that necessitate it. Uh, there are new players in the game, meaning there are new professing evangelicals who are uh, uh, disputing inerrancy or wanting to recast inerrancy. Uh, there are new arguments. There are more sophisticated arguments. And there are direct attacks on the Chicago Statement itself. And so I think just given these developments and the fact that we are now, boy, how many years out, um, over 40 years since it's it was first written, that it could it could use some updating and 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 especially in light of these recent uh attacks and new arguments and new players and um so that that's the main reason why i think it needs updating you know i uh there are a few like greg beale um uh and uh um, robert yarbrough they also think it could use a little uh help um and uh i presented you know i presented papers i presented a paper down at ets recently with Yarbrough, Yarbrough, robert yarbrough and he thinks there could be some helpful uh, modifications so but that's the main reason and I, I think that's and i think yarbrough himself would say that given the language and the times and all those things and now we're 40 years later that it would just make sense that there'd be a little bit of uh, updating and mod modifying of it uh, in order to strengthen it really in order to strengthen it for the next generation so that's the main reason. Okay. And then you mentioned your paper for the ETS meeting in 2021. Um, yeah. Now, in that paper, you talk about reflexive and defensive modifications. What do you mean by those terms? Yeah. So the defensive, so again, these are my terms trying to figure out ways of explaining what I'm doing here. So the defensive modifications would be where you have clearly uh, wrong-headed, philosophically inept, uh, theologically confused attacks on the Chicago Statement. And there have been plenty. Um, I mean, some of the stuff has been so bad. If I don't know if you've read Kenton Sparks' book, book on um, God's Word and Human, God's Word and Human Words, but he was counseled against his philosophical uh, meanderings in the beginning of his book because he just really didn't know what he was talking about and um and then he proceeds from that point to then launch this full-scale attack on the reliability of the old testament record <laughs> and uh these are just very poor uh arguments but they gain traction and so the defensive modifications would be to answer those very directly okay we've had new developments they're not great they're clearly wrong but they need to be answered directly because they are present and because they're coming from some influential people who are writing some big influential books. So that's what I mean by defensive. And then, but reflective then is based on the assumption that we can always learn from our critics, even if they are mostly wrong. And even if they frame things in mostly unhelpful ways, we can step back and be like, okay, is there something here where we can learn and, uh, and think about how to frame things better? And the framers of the Chicago Statement themselves said, and I'm quoting here, I'm, I'm just going to read it. I think it's helpful. They said, quote, we acknowledge the limitations of a document prepared in a brief intensive conference and do not propose that the statement be given creedal weight. Yet we rejoice in the deepening of our own convictions through our discussions together. And we pray that the statement we have signed may be used for the glory of our God and toward a new reformation of the church and its faith, life, and mission. And so even they are recognizing that you know the way this is prepared it's not it's not going to be an absolute perfect document and to me that's opening up the door a little bit to say okay for last 40 years what have we learned even from the critics even when they've been bad 
Uh, is there something that we can do here to strengthen the language, to to um, strengthen the way we're saying things, to add things that could could be to make things more clear? In fact, they weren't before. And so that's what those two categories are, the defensive and the, the reflective. Okay. Um, and as you say, uh, the framers inter in intended it for it to be um, eventually um, modified in some way. Uh, but well, I'm, I I I read it that way. Not everybody reads it that way, <laughs> right? But, but you're right. Um, I think at least that statement is saying. Uh, listen, we know we recognize the, the the limitations of how this came about, and we're not attaching creedal weight to this document. That's that's pretty significant to me. That's that's opening the door to say, okay, we can we can uh, we can modify it. We can we can do something. We can do something here. Now, this question may be a little redundant, but um, I think it cuts to the core of what we're we just talked about. But defenders of CSBI. Have said the Chicago statement should be interpreted as the founders or framers should intended it to be read. Yeah, and interpreted. Right. So, how do you, you how do your suggested updates to the statement adhere to those sentiments? Well, I would say first of all, I completely agree. <laughs> I completely agree with that statement because that's how we should read anybody's words. We should we should read any document uh, according to what the original authors or framers, if it's the multiple author document, what they intended. And so that's precisely what I wanted to do with my uh, dissertation, and which is exactly why I relied on R.C. Sproul's commentary throughout the entire uh, dissertation itself, because R.C. Sproul, he was one of the original framers of the Chicago Statement, and he wrote a commentary after Chicago Statement had been published in order to explain specifically the meaning of each article. And so here you have an original framer telling you this is what it means by what it says. And so I said, hey, that's a great thing that I should lean on as I go through my dissertation, because I want to tether myself to the Chicago Statement and to its original um, intention. And so that's what I did. And that's why I used R.C. Sproul so heavily throughout. And then, so then the 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 question then is, uh, you, you asked, how do my suggestive updates adhere to those sentiments of wanting to maintain the original founder's um, intention. And I would say, well, you you can't just look at the, the very fact that I'm uh, suggesting modifications as undermining anything that the original framers would say. You have to either actually ask by what they said and how they framed the Chicago Statement, uh, what is the, the, the doctrine that they are communicating? And as, as Derek Brown, has he undermined that doctrine of inerrancy by any of these modifications? And I would say absolutely not. I don't believe that any of the modifications actually go outside the bounds of the original framers' intentions by what they wrote. And of course, I've had disagreements about that issue, and we can have those conversations, and I'm happy to, to have those conversations and even have those debates. But I'm persuaded that nothing that I wrote uh, undermines or goes beyond the bounds of what was originally intended in terms of communicating the doctrine of inerrancy in this in this carefully nuanced way. So actually, from my perspective, and I don't believe that I that I uh, undermine that original intention. And I, and I sought to tether myself to it so that. It would be a, a true strengthening of the, the document, not an undermining of it. Well, we can't get into all of the articles that you 
propose and the additional ones and um, the ones you want to reframe. But I do want to look at one in particular, um, yeah. Article 8. Um, mm -hmm. And at least in your framing, it wouldn't be in the originals because the numbers change, I believe. Oh, right, right. That's that's one thing I would change if I ever published this is that's one of the suggestions that, they, that I got. They said you shouldn't renumber it because that's confusing for people. You should have all the original numbers and then insert just your new ones without a number and just call it something out, you know, just give it a title or whatever. So I, I, I know that's that's a little confusing. The renumbering is can throw people off. But yeah, regardless, um, you want. Uh, to reframe the article to emphasize the human authorship of scripture in a more clear yep. way. So yep. um, I wanted to give you a chance to say, at, articulate how you propose that statement be more clear. Yeah, so this is something that you find among the, the critics of inerrancy. And for the most part, it's, it's philosophically wrongheaded. So they're assuming that unless you have errors in the Bible, that the Bible is not fully human. And that's just a, a wrong premise to begin with, because you're assuming that an essential property of humanness is the commission of error. And we know that that's not true because Adam uh, was sinless and fully human and Jesus was sinless and fully human. And there's coming a day when we'll be sinless and be more human than we've ever been. And so just that philosophical assumption is wrong. But the 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 complaint that the way we frame inerrancy seems to take away from the humanity of Scripture. Well, let's think about that for a minute. And is there a way that we can frame these things in a way that that still uh, points out that that. Uh, that assumption, that philosophical assumption is wrong, but at the same time talks about the way the human authors were used by God in a way that does more uh, articulate with greater clarity uh, um, the humanness of, of, of Scripture, the, the, the human instruments or the human means of, of Scripture's writing. And so that's what I wanted to do, because the statement in the original statement, uh, we affirm that God and his work of inspiration utilized the distinctive personalities and literary styles of the, the writers whom he had chosen and prepared. We deny that in causing these writers to use the very words that he chose override overrode their personalities. Well, you have not only concerns about the humanity of scripture, but you also have people who would argue for uh, that this kind of sounds like a, a almost kind of dictation. And that's one of the, the the objections to an inerrancy that's been posited is that it requires that God just dictate word for word to the writers and they write them down, uh, perhaps even kind of in a trance-like state or at the very least just listening and, and copying down what God wrote. And that's a, that's a wrong view too. Uh, dictation only happens occasionally in the Bible. Predominantly, it's not the main way that God inspired scripture. And so if there is a way of the old, the original Chicago statement is framing it that could give credence to the idea that we we are talking about dictation, even though the Chicago statement does qualify and does say that dictation's not how it happened. Nevertheless, are we kind of taking away what we say with the one hand uh, by framing other articles in a way that could give credence to this idea of, of, of dictation? So having said all that. Uh, what I wanted to do was to make it clear in uh, a modified statement that uh, that there is this affirmation that the authors were writing according to their own free expression. And this is kind of the mystery now of the mode of inspiration, that the authors are writing according to what they most want to write. And this would obviously be coming 
from a, a, a Calvinist perspective of, of free will and not a libertarian uh, a view of free will. So then we have theological issues we've got to deal with there. But at the very least, I will, if, if you can understand the authors is writing what they most want to write at the same time, God is sovereignly inspiring the scripture then I think you now have added uh, an, a crucial aspect of this humanity that's important and needed, while at the same time preserving the sovereignty. Because I don't take away anything that's from that first part of that sentence. We affirm that God in his work of inspiration utilized the distinct personalities of the writers he chose and prepared. I just add to that saying, in most cases, the Bible writers write according to their own free expression, writing what they most want to write. So they're acting freely in their what you might say in their humanity. Luke's doing his research. Paul's writing to the, the church of Corinth or any of the churches, and he's got concerns and he's worked up and he's writing and he's thinking. And he's um, and the mystery is, is that in that God inspires the written word. And so that there is this identity, this uh, between what Paul is writing and the actual word of God. Um, and then I think here on the, it just, and then the this is kind of a, a defensive statement, you might say, uh, on the, the the denial part, the first part that I didn't modify says we deny that God in causing these writers to use the very words that he chose overrode their personalities. And then I add, we further deny that inerrancy necessarily requires a limitation on the humanity of the biblical authors. That's just a direct statement to anybody who suggests otherwise. So that's why it's a defensive uh, uh, modification. And I trust that no inerrantist is going to disagree with that. Uh, dis, uh, that statement there. And honestly, I'm not sure that any inerrantist would disagree with what I said about, I'm just stating what what has been argued for in terms of inspiration for years and years and years, uh, that the authors wrote according to their own free expression, and that the mystery is in, in, in how God inspires scripture at the same time. There's this concurrence, that's what we've called it, concurrence between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And so that's that's what I wanted to add a little bit there to to round things out and thought it was helpful and um but yeah great question yeah it certainly clears things up for me um so I appreciate that um well that's helpful to hear. yeah um I I will say I didn't give you this question but I, I would like to follow up with another one of your um, sure. additions um the Bible is story um I will oh sure. Uh, that one is very, I thought, unique. Um, sure, yeah. The one you think of when thinking of inerrancy, um, at least in in my mind. Now, if you're, I, I'm sure it's not the case for yourself or for others, but um, could you explain to our audience why why it's important to think of the Bible as a cohesive uh, story in, in terms of inerrancy? Yeah, thank you. That's that's an excellent question. And I, you're right. This was a contribution that I thought was necessary, and I just hadn't seen really anywhere else. The reason why I thought this is necessary is because you had some evangelical errantists who were who were drawing a dichotomy between story and and truth, and it just seemed to be kind of a naive, uh, almost sophomoric critique because it's very easy to have a true story. Of course, we all know that. But we do need to recognize that the Bible is, in large measure, its narrative. Uh, it has a, it has plot development. It has a beginning and an end and a climax. And 
Um, it is truly a story. In fact, it's the story of all stories. In fact, you could say, and this is something that Tom Nettle said in my defense, just a wonderful uh, point. He pointed out, he says, it's the story of all stories. It's the story that all other good stories are based on. What We so resonate with stories of redemption and, and things like that. Well, why is that? Well, it's because of the greatest story, even if people don't even realize that. But nevertheless, I thought there is something there there's a critique here that's happening people are trying to say listen we need to view the bible as a as story not just merely didactic literature uh but as or theological literature but as a story and of course it's not all it is it is also didactic and theological literature but it is also a story and that needs to be i think that critique needs to be heard and, and respected um, i think it's wrong to draw a a false uh, dichotomy between story and, and truth, which is why I, I framed the, this edition the way I did, so that it would it would show that the Bible is true story, but it is also a story, and there are elements to it that need to be recognized in that sense. So I wanted to find here, see if I could even tell you if I can remember. Um, okay, here. Um, we affirm that the Bible is a glorious and compelling story of God's redemptive action in the world. And again, this is, is this is happening because some of the critiques of the Chicago Statement were saying um, the way you're framing and talking about the Bible, it sounds, to, for lack of a better term, it sounds a bit cold, you know, uh, didactic, uh, lacking of life or whatever. And so I thought this is a good way to kind of counterbalance that take a critique, reject the false dichotomy they're they're suggesting, but but also uh, to, to, to provide something like this that rounds things out. So we affirm that the Bible is a glorious and compelling story of God's redemptive action in the world. We further affirm that the biblical narrative faithfully portrays uh, in the sum of its parts, God's purpose in creation, fall, redemption, and judgment, and is paradigmatic for every element of what we call story. Now that last sentence, paradigmatic what we that is from tom nettles i mean that was his idea and i just thought that is brilliant and i'm gonna put that in there uh and so i just i think these things are helpful and then finally we deny and then this is answering these wrong-headed uh critiques we deny that story and essential history are mutually exclusive or that the designation of bible as story implies that the biblical narratives contain untrue mythical or fabricated elements or cannot be said to correspond to actual states of affairs and that is i'm i'm i have someone specifically in mind when i'm writing that uh, who's critiqued the chicago statement who's not an inerrantist uh, but who thinks that it's not possible to say both of those things together saying yes we can and that's why i wrote it oh uh, was that critique from carlos bozell yes <laughs> yes um i remember that from your ets talk Okay, I, I listened to it, so I encourage okay. listeners to also listen to that because um, mm. does a good job at laying out some of his uh, proposed articles in there. Yeah. Uh, now, Derek, your um, article at TGC um, came with some feedback. Uh, yeah, some, sure, positive and some negative. Um, yeah, and one of the prominent critiques came from Dr. Bill Roach. Mm -hmm. uh, for listeners who don't know. Dr. Bill Roach uh, worked closely with Norman Geisler when he was alive and right. was um, a doctoral student of uh, um, someone I actually interview um, for the show. Um, so great tidbit there. But uh, Bill oh. Roach has done a lot of great work. Um, and yeah. uh, we I, I pre, I've appreciated his work over the years. Um, 
So have I, as it turns out. <laughs> yes. Uh, but I'm sure you were surprised to to get a critique um, from your article. Um, uh, there's one specific quote that you highlight in your response to, to Bill Roach. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. when you, I'll read it here. Uh, when you look at the revisions that this figure, referring to you, Derek Brown, yeah. um, brought about in his dissertation, and some of the calls for the nature of truth and the nature of propositional language. Uh, what is going, what is going to do, is that it is going to open the floodgates for existential hermeneutics, standpoint epistemology, and the woke social justice movement to all fly under the banner of the Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy. So yeah. uh, there's a lot there, um, mm -hmm. and I guess to be um, first, I wanted to ask you since you were the one who wrote the article and probably didn't get a chance to interact with Bill, although I'm not sure if you have been private or not. Um, but uh, why did you decide to publish your article with TGC? Yeah. Um, my first article that I published with TGC was in 2012. And as it turns out, it was actually a book review of Norm Geisler and Bill Roach's book, Defending Inerrancy. Um, and uh, which I said was a, a great book, but I also questioned whether or not th they had made a point that the Chicago Statement didn't need modification. And I suggested, I said, are you sure? Maybe, maybe it does. And that, but that was it. Otherwise, I thought it was a great book and, rec and, and, and actually recommended it. Um, why did I publish? So, so I published that. And then from that point, from that, from 2012 up until that Chicago Statement article, or I should say there's one after that. I think the one after that I published, I, I was just shy of 30 articles that I'd written for the uh, Gospel Coalition. And um, I was originally asked and I developed relationships with some folks there. And I liked what Gospel Coalition was doing. And I really liked some of the theological resources they had and the articles they had. And I just, I liked it as a resource. I really liked the men that were there, specifically the the guys I was personally acquainted with, just men of integrity and, and, and high, highly competent. And so uh, I would be asked to publish articles on a pretty steady clip over the next few years, and I would publish no problem. And um, and then things kind of started to shift a little bit over at Gospel Coalition, and a few articles would creep up here and there. And I'm thinking, ooh, this is this is a little strange. What's going on here? But uh, but still, you know, you know, I just assumed, all right, not assumed, but I just there's no perfect. Um, uh, there's no perfect theological resource of this type, and and they've got a lot of good stuff going on over there. And there's going to be some things I don't agree with. I don't agree with. I don't fully agree with any uh, website or resource in in that sense. There's always going to be something to disagree with. And so I just said this this is this should be fine, especially because I took their stance on inerrancy to be solid as well. That they didn't have a they weren't hedging on the the doctrine of inerrancy. Now I think someone could question that because one of the founders himself was a theistic evolutionist and i'm talking about tim keller but so i get i get the background concerns but in terms of what they had articulated about inerrancy i just i just didn't see any problem so i published it with them at a request so someone had requested that i do that and i figured hey they, they've got a wide reach this is this would be helpful to get some of these ideas out maybe get the conversation started and that was the the reason why i published with the gospel coalition well, there's an interesting, I don't know if you know this, but uh, on uh, Kevin DeYoung's podcast, uh, Life Books and Everything, that he has a conversation with Colin, um, uh, I'm blanking on his last name right now, um, and uh, uh, Justin Taylor, 
um, yep. and they're talking about uh, a wide, they talk about a wide variety of things. But at the end of their one of the conversations, once they talked about your article and some of the feedback they got, and so uh, I just thought it was interesting how much of a um, a conversation that it caused, and um, I, I hope it's been helpful in some ways, at least for you and for for others. But I know some of that feedback has probably not been extraordinarily helpful um, in other ways. Um, yeah, yeah, I think it has been, it is helpful. You know, I one of the wonderful things about doing a PhD is you learn how to, to get smacked around pretty good and not take it personally. So I encourage, <laughs> I encourage guys to get a PhD for that reason. Uh, you have to sit in seminars and labor really hard to write accurately and write well. And then you have to sit around and allow your peers who are very skilled and your professor to to really let you have it. And boy, that just develops in you a, a way of receiving criticism uh, that is helpful. And you you don't get bent out of shape. You don't get become bitter. You don't get angry. You don't take it personally. You just say, hey, this is for my benefit. And actually, it's for the benefit of people who read my stuff. I'm going to become a better and better theologian. I'll become a better and better writer. And so in a sense, I, I don't mind. In fact, I find negative feedback to be helpful in, in many cases. I think what's frustrating is when you're not even read in a way that's um, ironically kept with the the intention of the original the original writer. Uh, and so I thought some of the critiques and I thought uh, and I and as you saw in my response, I mean, these are all public, so I'm not saying anything that people can't see already. But I just thought some of Bill Roach's uh, critiques were just they weren't even accurate and, and not even that, but it wasn't reading it charitably at all. Um, and it was a lot of guilt by association. So maybe that maybe I'm at fault with publishing with TGC. That's fine. I can we can have that that debate. Maybe that wasn't wise. Okay, that's but that's different than treating the article on its own terms. And I'm just afraid that some of the critiques were uh, wrapping me up with the problems that they have with Gospel Coalition, and then just assume that this article is in lockstep with all the things that uh, Roach was concerned about, and that's now that's what this article represents when in fact if you take this article on its own terms and actually read it within the context of the dissertation i'm not suggesting any of the things that bill roach says that i'm suggesting in fact i'm actually on his side and critiquing them and i think that's where is frustrating is to to have your things read in a way that casts it in the worst possible light so that actually it's the the critiques aren't accurate and that's what i tried to get after in my response and um, so, no, I never was able to talk to Bill Roach personally. I reached out to him uh, and that never happened. Uh, we had some exchanges on Twitter, stuff like that. But then I eventually just realized, you know, I'm not sure this is going to go anywhere. So I said, hey, critiques are always welcome. If you think that I should have said it this way, I can think about that. And maybe maybe I can start I can introduce that into uh, future future articles or publications or whatever. Um, but yeah, so so in in that sense, I, I I appreciate negative feedback in as much as it's read my stuff accurately and it's true and it's, but this wasn't I didn't think very helpful. Sure. Um, now hopefully this is a question of critique that is somewhat make makes you think a little bit of, about um, your thesis and you probably have thought about it. Um, but have you considered that revising the Chicago statement could open doors to calls? for revising the statement in a more progressive or liberal direction? Oh, I mean, I, that would, that I could, yes, of course. I mean, you could, you could, um, 
take it that way, um, but only if the the author wasn't laboring to tether himself to the Chicago Statement and and exalt it as a as a wonderful document originally as it was written. I mean, my dissertation uh, spends several pages defending historically, historic, giving a historical defense of the, the doctrine of inerrancy. Uh, and then I go on to heavily and thoroughly critique all the new major players who are trying to critique the Chicago Statement. And so, I mean, if you hear the word modify, modify the uh, Chicago Statement, if you hear that and then think he's undermining inerrancy, I just don't think you're thinking about it carefully enough. Because the, the merely suggesting modifications to a document doesn't mean that I'm undermining what the document stands for. I'm simply saying there are things that, and I've already said this, there are things that have come along since then that have necessitated uh, us to update some of the language and add a few things here and there. And so I just think that's a, a confusion where merely uh, suggesting modifications to this document is, is opening the door to uh, progressive and liberal ideas. It, it would if I started my whole argument by saying inerrancy as historically understood and as reflected in the Chicago statement needs to be overturned, which is exactly what I was arguing against because there are people who are saying that I'm saying I just don't have time for that. I don't have patience for that. That's not what I'm after. And so, uh, I, again, I just think that's not a careful reading at all of what I've I've done. And and and, and so yeah, I, I, and honestly, honestly, here's here's the truth. The, the question was, is did I did I think not initially? No, I certainly didn't think that. <laughs> I didn't think that would be the case at all because I labored so diligently to to say I am within the inerrancy tradition, starting in Scripture, running itself through the early church, all the way through the reformers, through the post reformers, uh, and until now. And I believe that there are no formal heirs in scripture and and i'm a i'm in a i'm a six day young earth creation i mean i just could go on and on um i believe axe heads float and and the fire comes down from heaven and um and all this stuff and so i i honestly did not think that initially and and i don't think my advisor greg allison thought that at all either so yeah well i thank you for uh, withstanding and to at least talking through some of these critiques. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I know we could go on, but because uh, there's been others, but I think that's sufficient for now. Um, sure. Now, in terms of the person in the pew, uh, we don't want to be ivory tower theologians and just yeah. talk about inerrancy like it's something uh, pie in the sky idea or just something that's lofty to talk about. Um, but uh, how do your proposed changes to the Chicago Statement affect the person in the pew, at all, if at all? Well, that's a great question. In fact, as it turns out, I actually I actually had the person in the pew in mind when I was uh, writing my dissertation, which is partly why you have articles like, or uh, you know, additional articles like uh, Bible a story and some of these things that are helping people understand the humanity of Scripture in light of God's sovereignty, and um, issues like the claim you'll hear it often you know inerrancy is a new doctrine it, it was made up post enlightenment post you know all right uh, you know 1900s 19th century uh, 20 early 20th century and to help people see that no this is this is not um a theological innovation 
And so I was thinking of the person in the pew as I was crafting this new, what I said with these modifications, because I wanted people to have a document that would really help them understand inerrancy in its fullness. And of course, we have the Chicago Statement, and uh, my, my stuff's not published. And so, I mean, I'd say read the Chicago Statement. But in, in writing, I was wanting to provide something that was that was edifying and useful to the the Christian who could read through this being like, oh, I understand this. This is clear. This is actually helpful. Oh, wow. This is gives me a view of the Bible that's rich and and it's trustworthy and it's and it's wonderful. And I and I walk away reading this document. I want to read the scripture. And so that I actually literally had the, the layperson in my mind as I was writing the dissertation. Because you're right, we don't want to be ivory tower theologians. Um we want we we labor for the church. And if our labor isn't for the church, it's 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 pretty pointless. Amen. Um, and anything else uh, that we might say about the Chicago statement that might be applicable to the person in the pew or even to um, the church that would be important to note? Yeah, I would say read it. Uh, I would say acquaint yourself with it. I would say uh, read the whole thing, get the the version that has do, doesn't just have the articles that have affirmation and denial, but also has the exposition because uh, that's a really helpful uh, addition and just helps you think through all the various things. It gives you a theological framework to understand it. So I'd say first and foremost, get online, type in Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy with Exposition and sit down and read it. Um, and uh, and you'll be blessed, you'll be edified, you'll be encouraged. And I think that's probably the, the, the main thing I would say is people need to acquaint themselves with it. There, You know, I think... On, on the, I do think Bill Roach is right. If we're talking sp just very strictly about a rewriting of the Chicago Statement, that probably can't happen without the ICBI. And the ICBI was a was a um, organization that had an expiration date, and it's it's gone now. And all the original framers of the, the Chicago Statement are gone now. And and so in terms of re recrafting the Chicago Statement, I'm I'm not sure we're able uh, to do that. I don't know. Well, but um, so at the very least, I'd say. Um, acquaint yourself well with the Chicago, Chicago Statement. You'll be blessed and edified as you do. If you can get a copy of R.C. Sproul's commentary on it, it's hard to find, but you can find it. If you can get that, read that along with it. And honestly, I think you'll get a really great handle on inerrancy, and you'll be able to uh, be able to answer some of the objections that have been raised. Uh, and if you're interested, you can also find my dissertation online. Scroll back to the end of the appendix and see all the uh, how I've I, I give at the in the appendix I give all my new uh, modified uh, all of it all the modified articles plus the additional ones and you can kind of compare and contrast but uh, I would just say acquaint yourself with the Chicago statement read it and um, don't be like me who it took many years of being a Christian before I was even introduced to it for sure yeah I would uh, encourage listeners to. Uh, look up um, Explaining Biblical Inerrancy, which is the compiled book that the Defending Inerrancy folks, uh, yeah. over DefendingInerrancy.com, they put together R.C. Sproul's commentary on the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, and then uh, Norman Geisler's commentary on the Chicago Statement on Biblical Hermeneutics together yeah. in one volume. Um, that's, that's super helpful. Um, now, uh, you've mentioned before in other places uh, that you plan on publishing your dissertation. Um, 
and I was curious if you would uh, uh, divulge any details on if you <laughs> if when you're planning on on doing that, if at all. Yeah, I mean that's that's a great question. I think even in that response, I I'd said that um, one of the reasons I held off on that is because I wanted to float it out there and 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 get some feedback, right? Because uh, I wanted to get feedback from from someone like a Bill Roach, even. I think that's why his critiques are so discouraging because he wasn't even touching on what we agreed. He wasn't even able to recognize where I was arguing along with him, alongside of him. And, uh, and so that was, that was especially discouraging and uh, all the places where we clearly agree. And so, um, so I, so I, when I originally wrote it, I thought I'm not going to, I'm definitely not going to, publish it you know i wrote it in 2015 i'm not going to 14 i'm not going to publish it in 2015 it needs some time i'll present some papers i'll present some articles i'll get some feedback i'll tighten up i've had some people read through it um and i'll take all of that and then i'll uh, publish it and so this critique came along this most recent one and i thought hey i need to slow down a little bit and and, and go back and and see what needs to be tightened up and honestly, in the last year, it's just been exceedingly busy. So it's any kind of idea of um, publishing it has kind of been set aside just due to, to sheer busyness. But I think given now that I've had a lot of positive feedback recently, uh, it hasn't been ne all negative. A lot of it's been uh, positive, especially even alongside of uh, Roach's negative I've uh, feedback. I got a lot of positive feedback from people who I really respect. Um, and not to mention all of my <laughs> dissertation board, Greg Allison, Tom Nettles, Steve Wellam, and Vern Poitras, they all really liked it. So I think I'm on solid ground. I think given that, given the, the, the 10 years, almost 10 years now, and the feedback, and I can go back and I can uh, tighten things up, probably I would love to have it uh, published in a, a, a year or so. I think that would be adequate. Maybe less than that depends on how much work I would I would need to do. So that's where I'm at. I, I it's not a promise, but that's a, a reasonable pers uh, perspective. Well, for listeners, uh, be on the lookout for Derek's book um, whenever that comes out in the next couple of years. Um, not a guarantee, of course, as he said, but yeah, uh, that would be really awesome. Um, Derek, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, um, and thank you for your time and. Uh, your patience with my questions. Um, it's been a been an honor, and uh, I wish you well and pray pray that your uh, ministry in California continues to to thrive. Well, I appreciate that, Clay, and I really appreciate the you taking the time out to put these questions together. And uh, it's been a joy to talk to you talk about this subject. And uh, uh, I look forward to seeing what the Lord does in your life and and continues how He continues to use you in this podcast and all that you're doing to to even uh, kind of exalt this this important doctrine. So uh, I pray the Lord continues to bless your work as well. Thank you. And uh, one quick correction. Um, Colin, his last name is Hanson. Works at the uh, Yeah, Colin Hanson, yeah. Yep. So uh, apologize to Colin Hanson if he's listening to this. Um, if he, if, likely not, but if he is. <laughs> um, sorry, Colin. Um, that's all for today. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, go and read the word.